If you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. <clears throat> Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the sacrament of baptism. I'm not sure how many weeks we're going to camp out here, uh, but if we're going to better understand the doctrine of baptism, we must start where the New Testament begins. In all of the Gospels, if you look, John the Baptist is presented as commissioned by God to go and baptize. And as he's baptizing, the scriptures actually do not start with the first baptismal candidate. It's not with the first person actually baptized and then they move forward. It actually starts midway through the ministry of John the Baptist with the baptism of one particular person, namely Jesus. Jesus is actually the first person named to be baptized in the New Testament, interestingly enough. Now, this may not seem like any big deal, but baptism up till this point in John's ministry wasn't what we think of it today. There was a ceremonial cleansing in what was called a mikvah. It was kind of a, a washing basin that the Jewish, uh, the Jewish people would go down into and they would come as unclean and they would go down and wash. And then when they would come out, they would be rendered ceremonially clean. And a person who uh, uh, had come, they would walk away saying, I have been cleaned. I repent of my sins. I've confessed my sins and I am now clean. And this is why John is preaching a baptism of repentance and he's calling sinners to be baptized who are in need of cleansing. But then Jesus comes along, right? And John's caught off guard a little bit. You'll see that in the text. And just like some of you might be now, starting now that you're starting to kind of think through the connections about the sinfulness and the repentance and whatnot, what is Jesus doing there if baptism is for cleansing and washing away sins? Did Jesus have sins that he needed to be forgiven of? Why would Jesus undergo uh, such an act that by definition showed that you were repentant? Well, some of these questions we're going to be answering today in our sermon, and we're going to really answer the question of uh, the, the title of the sermon, Baptism, What Is It? We're going to kind of unpack that today. What, what is baptism? And we're going to see uh, what baptism is from Matthew chapter 3. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter. It's not too many verses. Now, that is verse 1 through 17. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to it, church. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from even these stones to raise, up, raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, 
and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Lord, we once again come to your holy and inspired word. And we ask that that same Holy Spirit that descended and rested upon Jesus, that inspired this word, would now rest and descend upon us. Help us to see clearly what your word says this morning. Because the same person, the same uh, member of the Trinity that inspired these words and gave them to us, If he lives in our hearts, Lord, he helps us understand and illuminates the scriptures for us. So, Lord, we call upon your help this morning to help us clearly understand what baptism is, what your word is telling us from this text this morning. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, in order to answer this question, what is baptism? I'm going to walk us through this text in Matthew 3, starting with verse 1. We're just going to kind of logically go down through this and see how this gives us an answer to what baptism is. So in verse 1, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So John is preaching and baptizing. What's his sermon? We see it there in verse 2. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I believe this one statement very much sums up what John is doing here. He knows what he's doing. He knows what his sermon is. And this could be this his whole sum or his whole sermon could be summarized in that one line. So repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent when now it's it's urgent, right? Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is very near. It's coming. And Matthew comments about John's preaching. He kind of gives his uh, bit in there and says that this is what the prophet Isaiah prophesied uh, about. That there would be this one that would come and that he would prepare the way of the Lord to make straight his paths. So John the Baptist is fulfilling that. And Matthew is saying he is fulfilling that. So we know that this is on track with what the Lord is wanting to do. And what you can see from this is that something big is about to happen. It hasn't happened yet. So John's preaching this really big message, but it's not quite here yet. He's, he's getting people ready. So he's telling them, I want you to prepare. I want you to make the path straight so that when it comes, we can walk right into it. And that something that is about to come is the kingdom of heaven, it says in verse 2. And then in verse 3, it talks about the Lord's coming. So one way that we might be able to read this is to say that the kingdom is coming and so is its king. It refers to the Lord, and I think it's obvious there that the Lord is the king of the kingdom, the one that is in control of this path and this way that he is preaching that is about to come. But we know John isn't the king, is he? We've talked about this before. John is just a pointer to the point. He is not the main thing, and this is pretty much always John's message. I'm not the big idea. Someone else is the big idea, and he's going to be coming. So John isn't the king, but nor is he even part of the kingdom. I want you to think about that. He isn't part of the kingdom that is yet to come. He says it's about to come. It's very near. And this is why Jesus says of John the Baptist, Truly I say to you, those born of women, 
uh, of those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Okay, so he's great. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now think about that. John's great, but he's not even as great as the least of those whom he's preparing for. These kingdom people. Right? So there's his sermon in a nutshell. Let's kind of see his sermon in action as it plays out. John's baptismal service can see played out uh, in, in verse 7. He starts to talk to the Pharisees who came, and he calls them a brood of vipers. Now, I think you all can see that that's an insult there. He's, he's not being kind to these people. He's basically ta- uh, making a point back to Genesis 3 uh, and the serpent, right? He's saying you guys are basically a bunch of children of Satan. He is not speaking kindly to these people. And he says, who warns you to flee the wrath to come? The wrath to come. What wrath, John? What wrath are you talking about? I thought you were talking about the kingdom of heaven. That seems like a good thing. What could John the Baptist mean by wrath? Is he talking about hell? Is he talking about the final judgment? Is that at hand? What is near? Or is he still talking about the kingdom of heaven? Let's keep reading. Verse 11, John the Baptist says this. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I think that's the answer to our question there, isn't it? It appears that the kingdom is the wrath to come. That winnowing fork separates out the two different kinds of things. And the one that is on uh, the left hand or whatever whatever hand you want to put it on, the one that is not the good thing that's gathered into the barn, the chaff, it's burned with unquenchable fire. Right. So this new regime is apparently going to act like a winnowing fork to separate out wheat from chaff. And this baptism with fire and the Holy Spirit is going to be the great winnower that gathers the wheat into the barn. It's that that gathering arm. But the chaff, it's left for the fire. That's the wrath to come. So the text is telling us that baptism is the mark for those meant for the barn, those meant for the kingdom. And everyone else is the chaff to be burned. You see how it has this winnowing principle that separates out. There's two kinds of things, and that's what baptism does. It makes this great contrast. Now, my point here is to show you that John himself makes this contrast very evident for us. That's his whole point. He wants you to see something here. John wants you to see that John's baptism is not the same as Christian baptism. Let me say that again. John wants you to see. He's, He's intentionally pointing this out, that what he's doing here in verse 11, he says, I do this, but Jesus does this. He wants you to see that there's a contrast between his baptism and Jesus's baptism. John baptizes with water. He says that very clearly. But Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. These are kind of polar opposites, aren't they? Water, fire. John's over here. Jesus over here. They're two different things. Now, he's, he's telling you this so that you see the contrast. But John prepares the way for the kingdom, its Lord, and his baptism. But what he is doing is not a work of the new order. He wants you to see that as well. There's something different here between the old and the new. Remember, he's the greatest of the old order. But even the least in the kingdom of uh, God is greater than John. So John's baptism is simply preparing for the baptism of Jesus, for the kingdom of God that's coming. It gets the recipient ready to enter the kingdom, but it does not have that principle of winnowing. 
Right? It doesn't have that power to separate out like Jesus' baptism does. That's how it's different. Jesus' baptism, according to John, does have this power that is different from John the Baptist's baptism. So that's very clear, right? Two different baptisms that we're talking about here. So Jesus comes and is baptized. And we have to ask, well, what is Jesus doing here then at John's baptism for repentance? Why? Why, is, why did Jesus show up to this event? Why didn't he just do his thing on his own? Verse 6 says that they were coming to John confessing their sins. Does Jesus have sins? In verse 8 it says that John preaches uh, to the Pharisees saying to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Does Jesus need to repent? So by showing up, is Jesus admitting guilt? Is he, is he repentant of his sin? Is he in need of cleansing? What is going on? Well, I want you to see that John was just as perplexed uh, about Jesus showing up as you might be. Now that you're starting to kind of wrestle with this. Oh, he's got the sin and the, the confession over here, confessing their sins, repentance. What is Jesus doing here? Well, verse 14, I want you to see how John is thinking along the same lines that you probably are now. Which means that we're probably reading this text right, right? So verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? What's going on here? Isn't this backwards? Shouldn't I be baptized by you, Jesus? And Jesus insists, though, that it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness in verse 15. What does that mean? I'm going to spend a little bit of time unpacking that, and I'm going to need you to, to, to really pay attention because it's kind of going to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it comes back, I promise. And, and you'll, you'll start to understand what Jesus means by it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Now, bear with me as I flesh this out. Okay, we're talking about a rite of passage here, right? A religious act that they're doing. Now, baptism, according to this text, will serve, this Christian baptism, that is, will serve as a winnowing fork. It will separate out the wheat from the chaff. So baptism acts as a gathering arm to bring people into the kingdom. That's what it does in John's analogy of the barn. It brings people into the barn. It separates them out kind of like a filter. So... While John points to a discontinuity between his baptism and Jesus's, I want you to see that this concept of the winnowing fork is actually not new, right? The gathering in, it's, that, that part isn't new. Jesus's baptism actually has great continuity with the old covenant. And as you will see in a moment, baptism is actually going to fulfill this concept of separating out. That, that gathering in and separating out, baptism fulfills this Old Testament principle that's been there from the very beginning. So I want you to think about it, church. What right was the winnowing fork of the Old Testament? What, what was that right where the, the Old Testament people had this chief mark that separated uh, the kingdom of Israel from the nations? What were they given that would separate them out? It was circumcision. Circumcision is what separated the Israelites from all the nations. That was kind of the test. And if anyone from the nations decided to come in, the first thing that they're going to do is they're going to circumcise those people. That is the right to enter the people of God in the Old Testament. They would come, the, the infant boys from the very, very start would be circumcised on the eighth day. So think about a little baby, absolutely newborn, just one day over a week old. They would come and they were circumcised on the eighth day. As a covenantal sign and seal between God and man. right? That was the right given to them that says that they are in covenant with God. Now, similarly to baptism, this marked a cutting off of the unclean part of a person and yet preserving the individual. right? 
And circumcision, the unclean part is cut off. I'm not going to go into the details. Most of you know what it is. But what would happen is they would say, all right, you are unclean. We're going to cut off this unclean part. And you, the individual, are going to remain clean and separate it out from the other part. Right. So that's what circumcision did. It, too, was a sign of repentance. And by the way, I just want you to note this. By the way, even the infant members, we said, were circumcised. So I want you to think about this. They were not asked if they believed in Israel's God before they were circumcised. They were not asked to confess their sins or repent. They were just circumcised. If they were a boy member of the household of God, those children were circumcised and brought into the people of God. Now, I'll come back to that in a little bit. Now, why do I bring up circumcision? What's this rabbit trail doing? What am I doing here? Well, I want to show you that Jesus suffered this right to fulfill all righteousness as well. Think about that. Think about Jesus and the life that he came and lived as a Jewish boy. Why did he do this? Why did Jesus undergo these rites of the covenant that point to repentance like circumcision? Why did he do this? Well, it's the same reason that he did it for baptism, to fulfill all righteousness. He must do this. This is the whole reason Jesus went through any of Israel's covenantal rites. Right? Think about the religion of uh, Israel's religion. That whole religion was wrapped up in the fact that they were sinners and that they were in need of cleansing. And that was God's covenant to save them from their sins. So for Jesus to be our great high priest, he had to sympathize with our weakness by becoming a man. And if he was a man, he was going to have to go through this Jewish system, this Hebrew system. So he was truly a man. He is truly a man. And he had to live under the law if he was going to do this rightly to fulfill all righteousness. That's how we have that great exchange where we get his righteousness and he takes our sins for us. That's how it happens. So what is my point in bringing up circumcision? The point is, is that when Jesus submits to baptism, he's undergoing the first rite of the new covenant, right? He's undergoing the first rite of the new covenant, the kingdom of God for us. It is a new covenant requirement for us to be baptized, isn't it? That's what all believers are called to do, to to believe and be baptized. So Jesus, as our great high priest, fulfilled not just the Old Testament commands for us, but also the New Testament commands for, uh, for us. The right to enter the Old Covenant people of God was circumcision. The right to enter the New Covenant people of God is baptism. And Jesus underwent both of these, even though they both point towards a repentant heart. So... My conclusion, not to the whole sermon, but to this argument, if your argument against infant baptism is is that they can't repent so they can't be baptized, then neither can Jesus, right? Neither can Jesus. But Jesus is baptized. Jesus goes through this act that pointed to those things. In verse 16, it says that he consented. He, He went through the baptism, and when he did this, When Jesus went through this baptism, uh, the very thing that John was preaching about happened. It was fulfilled. He was baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. Right, That that kingdom that was coming, it came. The Spirit descended upon him like a dove. It rested on him. Further, the Father thundered from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Notice what he didn't say. This is my Son whom I have forgiven. He just says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And this was the confirmation that Jesus was winnowed out. He was the chosen one separated from the fiery judgment to come. He was the one chosen accepted person. He's the chief man of all humanity. And Jesus, when he entered into the kingdom, what he did is he entered the hallowed or he entered the waters and hallowed them. 
He made those waters of baptism. He made baptism into something different. He changed it, and that's what Jesus did. When this happened, baptism fulfilled the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, which was circumcision. Now think about that. In the old covenant, circumcision was that sign and seal that you were part of the people of God. When Jesus came, he fulfilled that sign, and no longer would it be circumcision to mark a child of God. What would it be? It would be baptism. Baptism now marks a child of God. So I want you to think about this. If you're trying to just sort this out in your mind, I want you to realize that uh, to, to enter into the kingdom of God, you no longer have to be circumcised. Some people don't think about that. They just see, well, they did that back then, and now we do this, and they don't really think about that transition, how that came to be. Well, why aren't you circumcised now? You're not circumcised because this sign and seal of the covenant has actually been fulfilled in baptism. It's not been replaced. I'll talk about that in a moment. I want you to see the biblical case for this, how I can make this argument. It actually comes from Scripture, and Paul himself connects circumcision to baptism as well. In Colossians 2, 11 through 12, it says this. He's speaking about Jesus to his church, to the people of God. And he says, in him, that's Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's talking to Gentiles here, just by the way. He says, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So hands off by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Well, how, Paul? He says, having been buried with him in baptism. Interesting. In which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Wow. So in baptism, we've actually been circumcised is what Paul is saying. And often this view, when it's presented, it's accused of saying, well, baptism replaces circumcision. That's replacement theology. I don't know if you've ever heard that terminology before, but people accuse that of replacement theology. I don't like that terminology because it's actually not accurate. When we say this, it doesn't re- the baptism doesn't replace circumcision. It fulfills it. There's lots of things in the New Covenant where you see that it's actually fulfilled. It's not replaced. It's not that you scrap the old and now we have something different. It's No, this is actually the fulfillment of uh, the old. It's what we've been waiting for all along. It's what we've been prepared for and what John is preaching about. So Paul can say that you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Christ through baptism. He tells Gentiles who've never been physically circumcised, you have been circumcised through baptism. So in Christian baptism, we're all circumcised. Everyone in here who has underwent baptism has been circumcised because you have the circumcision of Christ made without hands. It's beautiful, isn't it? How God keeps this continuity going through even in the New Testament. So Jesus fulfills all righteousness for us in those baptismal waters. And frankly, it's not just circumcision that he fulfills all the righteousness for. It's the whole law, right? When we are identified with Jesus in Christ, we have his righteousness. All that Jesus has is given to us. So here we have a better explanation of what Jesus is fulfilling. That brings some more light on what he meant by this was to fulfill all righteousness. So let's now move to a little bit of the meaning behind baptism. I want you to be able to walk away today saying, well, what is baptism, though? I would like even a definition. If you're taking notes, I'd like you to be able to say what baptism is. So in this way, baptism moves from primarily a symbol of sin and repentance to identification with Jesus. 
And it's not that it has nothing to do with sin and repentance. It does. I mean, Peter will even say at Pentecost, repent and be baptized, right? So it has something to do with repentance, but its primary symbol and sign is identification with Jesus, who is sinless, right? He isn't a sinner, and our identity is in Jesus. So baptism no longer means I'm a sinner. It actually means I'm a saint, right? And that's something that we often miss about baptism. We think that baptism means that I'm not a Christian, when, we, when you break down the definitions, don't we? It means I'm a sinner and I need saved. No, that's not, that's not what it means. Baptism means I have been saved. That's what marks it. That's, that says I'm part of the people of God. And we need to get back to realizing this. So what God said of Jesus in baptism, once we start to have this understanding, we realize that Jesus or God says the same thing about us in baptism that he says about Jesus. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Right? That's what baptism says. When we're baptized, it's not so much a a message from us to God as it is from God to us. Now, this is kind of radical to some people because we were raised. Many of us were raised up saying, well, this is our way that we show the church and show the world that we're a Christian. Is it, though? Is, Is that what the scriptures say, that baptism is our message to God? Hey, God, I'm a Christian, just so you know. No, baptism is something where God already knows that, by the way. God knows who is and who isn't. He sees very clearly. His, his eyes are baptismal eyes. He is the winnow of heart. He, he, he sees down and he already knows who is and who isn't. So baptism is his message to us that we might see what God has already done for us. We don't tell uh, God in, baptize, in baptism that we're a sinner. He tells us that we are his beloved. It's beautiful. God speaks those promises to us in our baptism. So if you're trying to write down a definition for those note takers that really want just a a simple, proper definition, I'm going to go way back to the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith. Actually, the the shorter catechism, a historic Orthodox uh, confession and catechism that the Presbyterian Church used to all believe in. And now many of the the different sects of Presbyterian have thrown it out. But I I believe that this is just a really good, simple, faithful uh, definition of baptism. The question goes, what is baptism? The answer is this. Baptism is a sacrament wherein with the washing of water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost doth signify and seal, this is the important part, are engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace. So you get the benefits, you get what Christ has, and our engagement to be the Lord's. You are engaged to be the Lord's. When you go through baptism, you are identified with Christ. You're engrafted into him. You're partaking of all that he has, and you are engaged to be his. You are on mission for Jesus. Jesus is giving you this charge to go and do the Lord's work. What he is calling you to do is what he does. That's what you are being told in baptism. So what are some of the practical implications for your baptism? Most of you in here are baptized, right? So you say, okay, I did it way back then. Now what? I mean, it's, it's, it's done, so we can go move forward, right? Well, there's still more to do with your baptism that we often don't think about. If you think about baptism in this way, it actually keeps a perennial use for us, doesn't it? When when baptism means what God is saying to us, that's something you can keep going back to. That's something that's actually going to help you uh, to be engaged to be the Lord's. So if baptism just says to God that we were repentant way back when, then we would need to be baptized every day, wouldn't we? I'm repentant. I'm a sinner. Well, let's get baptized. 
right? Let's just do it right now. And, and perhaps this is why church camps look like this, right? Every year the same kids come back. And, I want to be a Christian. Okay, let's baptize them. They've been baptized 12 times. Every year they get baptized at church camp. And, and, and that's because baptism is so poorly understood. They feel the need to retell God all the time. I'm repentant. And it's good. You should. That's why we do it every week in our, in our liturgy. But that's not what baptism means. Right? Baptism is your message from God to you. If we rightly understand baptism, we would reflect and recall back to what God has already said about us in our baptism. So when we remember our baptism, we remember God's promise to us, not so much our failed promises to him. Right? It, it's a little bit of a flip to our culture, isn't it? We, we've really kind of shifted the whole meaning of baptism. Every baptized person today can still use, if we want to speak of it like this, you can use your baptism because it always serves as a sign and a symbol of your safety in the kingdom of God. God's called you out from the world. He says, you are mine. You're my son. Think about the implications of a father telling a son over and over, you're mine. You're my boy. You're my daughter. That matters, doesn't it? You need to keep going back to that. Every time you think about your baptism, I want you to think about your heavenly father saying, I'm pleased with you. I'm proud of you. You are mine. And guess what? You're in my house. You're in the barn. You've been winnowed out. You're the wheat. You're the good stuff, son. You are mine. That's what your baptism says. So the exhortation to the baptized isn't repent and be baptized again in a rededication over and over again, right? It's not that. It is repent. It is, it's repent and start acting like what you've already called to be. You're my son. I want you to act like my son. That's what baptism says. Be what you're called to be. Be who I tell you that you are. That's You've lived. You've died. You've been buried. You've been resurrected. You've ascended in Christ. That's who you're identified with. That's your identity. Live like that. That's what you're called to. So, some practical implications here. Just super, super practical. Westminster, larger catechism, number 167. You're probably thinking, oh my goodness. Could it get any more boring? Westminster Larger Catechism 167. What is or how is our baptism to be improved by us? And you're going to kind of roll your eyes thinking, oh, he's going to say a long answer and this is going to be just old stuff that's dusty. Well, the, the dusty stuff, I think, is what we need to undust. I mean, if this is radical for you, some guys, this this is just orthodox teaching on baptism, by the way. If you look through the history of the church, this is what we've always believed. And we started to shift over time because we quit going back to what we believe. We, we think we've got it already. We move on ahead, right? Okay, so how is our baptism to be improved by us? And we, we now call it remembering our baptism. Here's the answer. It says, and this they wrote this back in the 1600s, and they're still saying this. The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long. Think about that. Especially in the time of temptation. Now, if you still have your Bibles open, you're in chapter 3. What does the heading for chapter 4 say in your Bibles? The temptation of Jesus. What just happened to Jesus? He was just baptized. And right after he's baptized, where is he going? He's going out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Wow. So they, they're noticing things about baptism that we've forgotten. That baptism is important to think about in our time of temptation. Even scripturally, we can see so. And when we're present, it says, at the administration of it to others, so when you're watching a baptism, by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and to the ends for which Christ instituted it. So what is the meaning of baptism? The privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby. What are the perks of being a Christian? What are the perks of being baptized and part of the people of God is what it's saying. 
and our solemn vow made therein. What have you been called to? And being humbled by our sinful defilement and our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism. What you've been, you're walking contrary to the what you've been called to be, the baptism that you've been placed into, into Christ. And our engagements, it says, by growing up to the assurance of pardon of sin. Now, we, we do the assurance of pardon of sin. And what this is saying is that your baptism actually reflecting on what God says about who you are helps you to have a better assurance of what he has done. When, he confesses, or when we confess that God forgives us of our sins and we call that the assurance of pardon, what it's saying here is that your baptism reflecting on that actually strengthens that moment in the liturgy where you have a better understanding. You know what? I am a child of God. I have been forgiven. And that actually means something. It helps me and live, live my life the way that I've been called to live. It goes on. And of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament by drawing strength from where? Drawing strength from how we told God a long time ago that we were repentant? No. By drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized. Again, baptism is all about Jesus. It's all about what he has done and how we've been placed in him. Why? For the mortification of sin, the quickening of grace, and by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given up their names to Christ. Think about that. In baptism, you have a new name. In baptism, you are a Christian. You are a saint. You are a son, a daughter. Your old way has gone away, and you've put on something new. In Colossians, in that same passage earlier that we were talking about, where it talks about baptism and circumcision, the next chapter goes on, and it says, put off the old man and put on the new man. Who's the new man? Is it your new self that's doing good? It's actually Christ. The new man is Christ, and you put him in, in uh, put him on in baptism. To walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same spirit into the one body. That one last line that, just think about that. The same spirit that descended and rested on Jesus that does the same thing for you in baptism, and it rests on you. It stays on you. You have the Holy Spirit given to you when you believe and are baptized. Beautiful, isn't it? When we look at baptism in this way, it really starts to, to blossom, and we can start to see how beautiful the faith is that we've been called to. It gets dusty at times, and we and we we kind of allow it to lose its luster because it's we it's because we don't dust it off enough. We don't go back to the simple truths that we've been raised in, the, the Ten Commandments, like we just said earlier. We think we know it, so we move on. Baptism, that's every, that's what you start with. We move on past baptism. No, no, no. All of your life, you reflect on what God says about you in baptism. This these catechism questions, by the way, were what the founders of America were raised on. Right? This is the, the people that built our country. This was their Sunday school questions. Their religious education were these catechisms. Perhaps, church, that we've lost something. Perhaps we need a little bit of a recovery of the simple truths of the gospel. The, the, the simple revival of historic Orthodox Christianity, not just with baptism, with many things. Right? We need a revival. We really do. Because you look around and so many of these things, if you look at them on the surface, they're stagnant. But they're under the surface. You dust them off and then you're like, wow, my baptism means that? It's amazing. So let me sum this chapter in the sermon up for you quickly. Here you have John the Baptist 
who's preaching to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Right. So the Pharisees come. They call. He calls them sinners. And, and he asks them who warned them to flee the wrath to come. And that's talking about the kingdom, we said. And then Jesus shows up. And he's baptism, and this baptism fulfills the sermon that John was just preaching about. It's a fulfillment of it. John's preaching, and bam, it happens right there in front of him. The kingdom of uh, God is here. The kingdom of heaven is here. And we know this because the king is here. Jesus is here. The Lord, the master is here. And he just opened up the gates of the kingdom in baptism. It's here. It's now. So baptism is now the royal seal that this king places upon his citizens to join him in his reign. That's what Jesus is doing. And this was confirmed by the Father that the Spirit was doing this. Or this was confirmed by the Father by the Spirit in this baptismal act. You're my son. Yep, we're on track. This is being fulfilled. Where we were going in the Old Testament, we're keeping on going in the New. We're on track. This is what John is preaching about. It's amazing to watch it all unfold. So, I ask you, church, the question for you today is, now that the King has come... Right? And his kingdom. He's opened up the kingdom for you in baptism. You've been placed in the kingdom of God. He's placed his seal upon you. How will you serve in his kingdom? Because that's where you're at now. You're in his kingdom. You're baptized. You're part of the church. You're part of the people of God. How are you going to live in light of your king giving this uh, pronouncement over you? Think about that. What kind of citizen will you be in his glorious reign as he puts all enemies under his feet? That's what he's doing. That's what the scriptures are saying that Jesus is doing. It says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. So the question is, will you therefore go? Will you therefore go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that he's commanded you. That's the baptismal charge. That's what Jesus leaves his disciples and says, do that kind of ministry. That's that's Jesus's battle plan, his takeover plan for the whole world to fill the earth with the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How much of the water covers the sea? All of it. That's all of it. That's that's Christ's plan to take over the world. He, he's going out and he says, baptism and discipleship is my way of doing this. And one other way that we could say this, think about discipleship, baptism and catechism. We're discipling. We're raising up the next generation in the, the truths of Scripture. We're showing them all that he has commanded us. And here's the nations, all the world. We, we would talk about all the other nations, the darkness that we have in the world. That's who we're after. We, we should be taking them on. They shouldn't be taking us on. And that's the baptismal charge. We're called to that. To, to preach the gospel, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and disciple them, teaching them all that Christ has commanded us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us a new name in baptism, that we are called out from the world, and that we are placed in your kingdom, in your church. And we are so thankful for all the benefits that we have for being in your church, for being part of your covenantal people. Lord, let us be encouraged today. I pray for every single member in this church that they really would remember uh, to improve on their baptism. By keep going, keeping on going back to the things that you've called them to already be. You've said that they are this, so Lord, I pray that they would live like that. That you've said that they've been baptized into Christ. Everyone who has been baptized has put on Christ is the way that your word says. So let, let us live like Christ. Let us be conformed to his image. Help us to be more and more like